Section 20 of The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science History of the Universe, Volume 6, edited by Francis Rolt Wheeler. Botany Chapter 2. Plant Structures The work of the earlier botanists was given over to two main objects, the classification of species and varieties in a manner that should most readily account for the entire system, and the determination of a true basis for such a taxonomic classification, requiring a somewhat close study of the morphology and the physiology of the plant. The later botanists, beginning mainly from the bases laid down by Linnaeus, developed the science of botany into a study of no little complexity, and questions arose of intense interest in themselves, but which took for granted a basic knowledge of these simpler matters of structure and of classification. As it would be difficult to carry the development of botanical thought up to its modern complexity without an assurance that the reader was conversant with the general outline, it is thought wiser to touch on it briefly here. Plants are differentiated from each other by certain variances of their parts, which again reveal causes deeper still. Wherefore, an understanding of the nature of these parts should precede a statement of their differences. Just as the man has various members by which he sees, hears, feels, so have the plants several kinds of organs. The advantage of this to the plant becomes plain by using the common illustration of the difference between a tribe of savages and a civilized community. Several kinds of organs in a plant mean to the plant just what division of labor means to the community. It results in better work and more work. All the work done by plants comes under two heads, nutrition and reproduction. This means that every plant must care for two things. One, the support of its own body, nutrition, and two, the production of other plants like itself, reproduction. To the great work of nutrition, many kinds of work contribute, and the same is true of reproduction. In a complex plant, therefore, there are certain organs which specially contribute to the work of nutrition, and others which are specially concerned with the work of reproduction. The plant is extremely dependent upon its surroundings, more so because of its lack of locomotion. For example, it must receive material from the outside and get rid of waste material. Therefore, organs must establish certain definite relations with things outside of themselves before they can work effectively, and these necessary relations are known as life relations. For example, green leaves are definitely related to light. They cannot do their peculiar work without it. 
many roots must be related to the soil. Certain plants are related to abundant water. Some plants, such as parasites, are related to other plants. Each organ, therefore, must become adjusted to a complete set of relations, and a plant with several organs has many delicate adjustments to care for. Three conspicuous organs, root, stem, and leaf, are concerned with nutrition, and most of these plants have at some time also another structure, the flower, which is concerned with reproduction. On examining an ordinary leaf, the blade is seen to consist of a green substance through which a network of veins is distributed. The larger veins that enter the blade send off smaller veinlets that are invisible. This is plainly shown by a skeleton leaf, wherein it appears that the vein system, or venation, of leaves is exceedingly diverse although all forms can be referred to a few general plans. In some leaves, a single, very prominent vein, known as the midrib, runs through the middle of the blade. From this, all the minor veins arise as branches, and such a leaf is said to be pinnately veined. In other leaves, several large veins, ribs, of equal prominence, enter the blade and diverge, each giving rise to smaller branches. Such a leaf is said to be palmately veined. In still other leaves, all the visible veins run approximately parallel from the base of the blade to its apex, such leaves being parallel veined, as distinct from the two preceding, which are both net veined. The upper and the under surface of a leaf is covered by a delicate transparent skin, epidermis, which generally shows no green color. Examined under the compound microscope, says John M. Coulter, it is seen to be made up of small units of structure known as cells. Each cell is bounded by a wall and in the epidermis these cells fit closely together, sometimes dovetailing with one another. Characteristic openings in the epidermis also will be discovered, sometimes in very great numbers. The whole apparatus is known as a stoma. These numerous openings are the stomata, which give passageway into the interior of the leaf putting the internal cells into communication with the air outside and so facilitating the interchange of gases. The size of these apertures may vary under different conditions. Between these two epidermal layers is the mass of green tissue making up the body of the leaf and known as mesophyll. This comprises cells containing the numerous small green bodies, chloroplasts, that give color to the whole leaf. Usually, the mesophyll cells are arranged differently in the upper and lower regions of the horizontal leaf. In the upper region, the cells just beneath the epidermis are elongated at right angles to the surface of the leaf and stand in close contact 
forming the palisade tissue. In the lower region of the leaf, the cells are irregular in form, and so loosely arranged as to leave air space between the cells, the whole region forming the spongy tissue. The air spaces communicate with one another, thus forming a labyrinthine system of air chambers throughout the spongy mesophyll. It is into this system of air chambers that the stomata open, and thus what may be called an internal atmosphere is in contact with all the green working cells, and this internal atmosphere is in free communication through the stomata with the external atmosphere. In general, says G. F. Atkinson, the function of the foliage leaf as an organ of the plant is fivefold. One, that of carbon dioxide assimilation. Two, that of transpiration. Three, that of the synthesis of other organic compounds. Four, that of respiration. Five, that of assimilation proper or the making of new living substances. The importance of the work of leaves is apparent, but this work cannot be done unless the leaf is exposed to light. This fact explains many things in connection with the position and arrangement of leaves. Leaves must be arranged to receive as much light as possible to help in their work, but too intense light is dangerous. Hence, the adjustment to light is a delicate one. If green plants should stop the manufacture of carbohydrates, the food supply of the world would soon be exhausted. All other forms of food are derived from carbohydrates in some way, and only green plants can add to the stock that is being drawn upon continually. This means that green plants must manufacture carbohydrates not only for their own use, but also for the use of animals, and of plants that are not green. Since leaves are chiefly expansions of green tissue, they are conspicuous in the manufacture of carbohydrates. It must be remembered that the manufacture goes on wherever there is green tissue, whether it is found in leaves or not. A very conspicuous fact about this manufacture is that it cannot go on unless the green tissue is exposed to light. This explains why leaves are adjusted in so many ways to obtain light. It also gives name to the process, photosynthesis, the name indicating that the work is done in the presence of light. The process demands that carbohydrates shall be made from raw materials common in nature and easily obtained by plants, and in photosynthesis, two such substances are used. One of these is water, which in the plants commonly thought of is absorbed by the roots from the soil. The other substance is carbon dioxide, a gas present in small proportion in the air, really in the form of carbonic acid gas, but one which is being constantly renewed as it is used, so that it is always available. 
water is made up of one part of oxygen and two parts of hydrogen while carbon dioxide consists of two parts of oxygen and one part of carbon these are just the elements that enter into the structure of a carbohydrate in photosynthesis the elements of water and carbon dioxide are separated and recombined to form a carbohydrate and in this process oxygen is a waste product and is given off by the working cells therefore in the sunlight a leaf is absorbing carbon dioxide and giving off oxygen and this gas exchange is the superficial indication that photosynthesis is going on such an important organ as the leaf says coulter again with its delicate active cells necessarily in communication with the air is exposed to numerous dangers conspicuous among these dangers are drought intense light and cold perhaps the most common danger to most plants is an excessive loss of water and when a drought prevails the problem of checking transpiration is a most serious one as the leaves are the prominent transpiring organs the chief methods of protection concern them the epidermis may be regarded as an ever-present check against transpiration for without it the active mesophyll cells would soon lose all their water in some plants of very dry regions what may be regarded as several epidermal layers appear the cuticle which is often developed upon the epidermis is one of the best protections against loss of water it is developed by the exposed walls of the epidermal cells and being constantly renewed from beneath it may become very thick and many-layered in dry regions or in any much exposed place the cuticle is a very constant feature of plants in many leaves remarks atkinson certain of the cells of the epidermis grow out into the form of hairs or scales they may form only a slightly downy covering or the leaf may be covered by a woolly or felt-like mass so that the epidermis is entirely concealed in dry or cold regions the hairy covering of leaves is very noticeable often giving them a brilliant silky white or bronze look in dry regions each leaf endeavors to expose as small a surface in proportion to substance to the drying air and intense light that this reduction in size holds a direct relation to the dry conditions is evident from the fact that the same plant often produces small leaves in a dry region and larger ones in moist conditions in the case of the cactus a large group in the dry regions of the southwest the leaves have become so much reduced that they are no longer used in photosynthesis and this process is carried on by the green tissue of the globular cylindrical or flattened stems the rosette habit is a very common method of protection used by small plants 
growing in exposed situations, as bare rocks and sandy ground. The clustered overlapping leaves form a very effective arrangement for resisting intense light or drought. There are leaves which can shift their positions according to their needs, directing their flat surfaces toward the light or more or less inclining them. Such leaves have been developed most extensively in the great family to which peas and beans belong, the most conspicuous ones being those of the so-called sensitive plants. The name has been given because the leaves respond to various external influences by changing position with remarkable rapidity. A slight touch or even jarring will call forth a response from the leaves, and the sudden application of heat gives striking results. Insect-devouring plants usually grow in swampy regions, the leaves forming small rosettes upon the ground. In one form of sundew, the blade is round and the margin is beset by prominent bristle-like hairs each with a globular gland at its tip. Shorter, gland-bearing hairs are scattered also over the inner surface of the blade. All these glands excrete a clear, sticky fluid, which hangs to them like dewdrops, and which, not being dissipated by sunlight, has suggested the name sundew. If a small insect becomes entangled in one of the sticky drops, the hair begins to curve inward and presently presses its victim down upon the surface of the blade. The famous Venus flytrap is found only in certain sandy swamps in North Carolina. The leaf blade is constructed so as to work like a steel trap, the two halves snapping together and the marginal bristles interlocking. A few sensitive hairs, like feelers, are developed on the leaf surface, and when one of these is touched by a small flying or hovering insect, the trap snaps shut and the insect is caught. Only after digestion, which is a slow process, does the trap open again. The stem is distinguished as that part of the plant which bears the leaves. It has for its chief function, says C. C. Curtis, the production and display of the leaves and roots, and the conduction of the materials which these organs are especially concerned in handling. It serves as a connection between them, carrying up the material absorbed by the roots and distributing the various substances received from the leaf. The stem may be compared to a system of transportation carrying building material for new cells and arranging for the bearing away of that which is waste. The stem best adapted for the proper display of leaves is generally upright, for they can be spread out on all sides and carried upward toward the light. To maintain the erect position is not a simple mechanical problem, and in large woody stems it involves an extensive development and arrangement of supporting tissues. 
Other stems lie along the ground bearing leaves only on the free side, while a third great group is that of the climbers, which use other plants as supports. The great lianus of South America belong to this class. It has been shown that the stem is, in a sense, a transportation system, and it becomes immediately evident that the material transported must be largely in soluble form. This liquid is known as sap. It is important to notice, says J.Y. Bergen and C.M. Davis, in their Principles of Botany, that sap is by no means the same substance everywhere and at all times. As it first makes its way by osmotic action inward through the root hairs of the growing plant, it differs little from ordinary well water. The liquid which flows from the cut stem of a tree just before the buds have begun to burst in the spring is mainly water, often with a little dissolved organic acids, proteids, and sugar. The sap which is obtained from maple trees in late winter or early spring is far richer in nutritious material, while the elaborated sap which is sent so abundantly into the ear of the corn at the time of its filling out contains great stores of food to support plant or animal life. Most root forms are adapted for growth in the soil, but there are many of which this is not true. Thus, many of the orchids have aerial roots which fasten the plants to the branch of a tree and absorb moisture from the heavy humid air of a tropical forest. Others are adventitious, like the ivy, which cause the plant to cling to a wall. Others again, like the mistletoe and the daughter, are parasitic and are adapted to prey upon their host, while another large group of roots are adapted to life in the water, such as the duckweed. The length of roots is rarely realized. Thus, winter wheat has been found to extend to a depth of seven feet, and the average root stretch of a plant of common oats is 154 feet. The Mexican mesquite has been known to extend 60 feet below ground in the search for water. The growing tip of each root and rootlet is protected by a cap of cells called the root cap. This root cap consists of several layers of cells, the outer ones gradually dying or being worn away, as the tip of the root pushes through the soil and being replaced by new layers which are continually forming beneath. A short distance behind the root cap, the surface of the root becomes covered by a more or less dense growth of hairs, known as root hairs. These hairs are outgrowths, sometimes very long ones, from the superficial cells a single cell producing a single root hair. In fact, the root hair is only an extended part of the superficial cell. The root absorbs water and materials dissolved in it from the soil, and the root hairs enormously increase the absorbing surface. 
thousands may occur on a square inch of surface. In the center of a young root is a solid vascular cylinder, often called the central axis, sometimes enclosing pith. Investing the solid vascular cylinder of the root is the cortex, which often can be stripped from the central axis like a spongy bark. The wood, xylem, and the bast, phloem, of the vascular cylinder do not hold the same relation to each other as in the stem. The vascular cylinder, instead of being made up of vascular bundles with wood toward the center and bast toward the outside as in stems, is made up of wood and bast strands alternating with each other around the center. The wood strands radiate from the center like the spokes of a wheel and the bast strands are between these spokes, near their outer ends. This arrangement of wood and bast is peculiar to roots. The vascular bundles of the root connect with those of the stem, and these in turn with those of the leaves, so that throughout the whole plant there is a continuous vascular system. End of section 20